Jesus describes himself to be the Good Shepherd. Back then, being a shepherd was hard work, and it usually wasn't the most glamorous job either. But still, Jesus uses metaphors to talk positively of shepherds, where he calls himself the Good Shepherd, and later, leaders of the church were called pastors. And this comes from the root word for shepherd. In Palestine in Jesus' day, many herds of sheep were kept by shepherds, but they weren't usually in an enclosed gate. So the shepherd would wake up early, guide the flock to the field where they would eat, and then guide them to a river to drink. After doing this all day, he would guide them back to the fold and count them at sunset. And even though the shepherd needed sleep, he was also watchful through the night of wild beasts and wolves who would try to attack the sheep. Margaret Feinberg, who's a Christian author and speaker, noticed that there were over 700 verses in the Bible that talk about sheep and shepherds. But she also realized that she just didn't know any shepherds. So she spent some time with a shepherdess in Oregon, and when she walked in, all she heard was bah, bah, bah. But the shepherdess, just by hearing the crying voice of one of her sheep, would turn around and be able to identify exactly which sheep she heard. Then she would call the sheep by name and find out exactly what was wrong. See, this gives us a window into just how much shepherds really do know and care for their sheep. So there you go, a little about sheep, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for gathering us here tonight where, where we get to do the most incredible thing. We get to come into your house to worship you, to receive your word, to receive forgiveness through your body and blood and communion. So God, we pray that tonight can be a night that we can really um, open up our hearts and our minds to receive you and to grow in all this we pray. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and turn to the book of John. If you don't have a Bible, you can download a Bible onto your smartphone and follow along that way, or there are some as well in the uh, seat backs uh, in front of you. So we are in, uh, in John chapter 10 that we're starting tonight. And as well, you'll notice that at the bottom here, we have uh, text questions to this number. And so if you wish to, you uh, are more than welcome to text a question. And I've got an iPad up here and I'll do my best to answer it on the fly. So we'll see how it goes. But let's get right into John chapter 10. And so this, by the way, the context of this is simply him just healing this blind man. And we had talked about it last week. You can go online and listen to it. It's like 35 minutes long. But Pastor Mike talked about how significant it was that this blind man was healed. And because he was born blind, and so it's not like he was partially blind or something. And, and it really put the Pharisees in a spin because they just didn't know what to do with Jesus. They thought, well, okay, he's evil. They didn't like him. And, but wait, if he's evil, then how can he perform such miracles? And there was a division. And so what he's doing here is he's talking to them and he's teaching. And so here's what he says there in verse one. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who, do, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the, sheep, to him, the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, 
for they do not know the voice of strangers. So, as James mentioned in our historical minute, uh, oftentimes in Palestine, they would just kind of be a sheepfold on a pasture of grass, but there were also sometimes gates. And, and so what Jesus is obviously talking about here is this, that, that whoever uh, goes through that door would have to be the shepherd. If you try to go the other way, you're going to be uh, a thief. And of course, he's going to now compare himself in the difference between himself and the, and the, um, and the thief. But but the other thing to acknowledge that James said in the historical minute that I just find really interesting is, is, is this quote from this lady, Margaret Feinberg. And, and she said that she can walk into a, a sheep pen as a shepherdess in Oregon, and she could recognize the sheep's sound and know exactly what sheep it is, even though there could be a hundred sheep there. And I just got to tell you, that, that blows me away a little bit. It really does. How wild is that to actually think that, the, that that's the kind of care that a shepherd, or in this case, a shepherdess has with the, with the sheep. And so what Jesus is saying here is totally true. And see, what's great about it is that when Jesus is talking, he's talking in these kind of metaphors, these parables, and everyone just simply gets it. Everyone understands it because, well, shepherding was a big thing back then. But let me ask you a question, a show of hands. Is anyone here a shepherd tonight? Anyone? No? Okay. Let me ask you this. Do you, do you know a shepherd or shepherdess? Anyone? Okay. Yeah. So this is what I'm saying. There's a little bit of lost in translation here, except that we can still understand it. Even 2,000 years later in 21st century America, we can still wrap our heads around what he's saying. We can get it. But for them back then especially, they would have totally got what he's saying. And it's true that a shepherd knows the, the sheep's voice and um, well, and then as well, I guess what he's saying here is that the sheep knows his voice and they follow, but they don't follow a stranger. And so then in verse six here, it explains it a little bit. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. Okay, so I guess that contradicts everything I just said. I said that, that they were understanding the shepherd metaphor and, and they absolutely understand the, the shepherding piece of it, but they didn't really fully get the second level, exactly what he was trying to say uh, about that as well. So, because when Jesus speaks in parables, uh, you know, obviously he was talking about gardening or something like that. It's about, it's not really about gardening, it's about the kingdom of God, and that's what uh, that verse there is saying. But then it says this in verse 7, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his, his life for the sheep. So to unpack this just a little bit. So, so Jesus uses an I am statement. Now, in, in the Bible here, in, um, in the Old Testament, uh, God identifies himself, and there's a few different Hebrew words for God. And so, so really the kind of most generic kind of uh, Hebrew word for God would be El, like E-L. And, um, and so we have like Elohim, El Shaddai, all right? Um, and, like, and also you'll see E-L in a bunch of names that come from a Hebrew origin. So, for example, my name is Michael, 
M-I-C-H-A-E-L, and at the L at the end means God. So I actually, I got God in my name. How cool is that? In fact, what uh, Michael means is it means close to God. Now, interestingly enough, the name Michael is only given to an angel, not a human, but that's another deal altogether. And so it's kind of funny, in high school, whenever I went to Mike, I, uh, I didn't realize it, but I totally cut God out of my own name. Whoops. And so, um, so I'm actually kind of considering long-term, maybe I should go back to Michael because it at least has God in the name, right? But we have Elohim, El Shaddai, all that kind of stuff. But as well, what we have is uh, whenever God introduces himself and he says, here's what my name is, it's Yahweh. And the four letters would be Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And, and Yahweh just literally just means I am. And so whenever Jesus makes an I am statement in the New Testament, particularly the several times that we see it in the book of John, whenever Jesus says I am, he's actually making a theological statement. Can anyone guess what kind of statement he's making? He's claiming to be who? God. And, and so whenever he says this, and in fact, um, throughout the book of John, there's a pattern that happens, I forget exactly, but it's like, I think a dozen times or so, that there's this pattern that's used. It's kind of this little plug-and-play formula of I am, and then whoever, and then whoever does not. It's, it's that kind of a pattern, and we get, that, we get that right here where he starts describing himself. I am, so this is in verse 9. I am, so whenever he uses that phrase, I am, it's claiming to be God. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In fact, later in John 14, he's going to say it as well, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this is another one of those patterns. And then whoever, uh, you know, believes in me, right? And so, so here's what he has here, is that I am the door. Um, he will be saved. Whoever enters through, by me will be saved. And so again, claiming to be God. In verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And so then as well, uh, I forget exactly where, where we stopped. Was it verse, do we, do we finish verse 11? Okay, so then let's go into verse 12. How does that sound? So verse, yeah, so verse 12 says this, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Oh, they had HR problems back then too. Can you believe that? <laughs> that? That you have someone who's not committed to the cause, committed to the organization. As soon as his life's on the line, he bails. That makes a lot of sense, right? But here's what 14 says. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So, whereas the contrast here is between the hired hand and Jesus. The hired hand, as soon as his life is on the line, flees and will allow the wolf to devour the sheep. But, but the good shepherd is willing to sacrifice his life for the sheep. What is this foreshadowing? The cross, right? This is foreshadowing what Jesus is saying is that he is willing to lay down his life for his people, for his children, for his sheep. And 
as well, what we have in here is we have this one verse that is really interesting, verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And so, so basically, the book of John, what, how it's a little bit different than the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that John, even though that he certainly records history, I mean, all of these are historical events, and there's a lot of things that, that happen in the book of John that, that are narrative-based, but they're also, we're getting at the theology here. So the book of John, not only does it ex- tell you what Jesus did, but it gives you the, 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 the flesh around it, gives you the theology around it. And the theology that we're getting into is something known as the Trinity. It's how we describe God. And so we have one God, but we have three persons. We have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not necessarily like it's three parts to God, as if a third of God is the Father, a third is the Son, and a third is the Holy Spirit. It's just simply we have one God in essence, one God, but then as well we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the book of John is going to allude or is going to talk about this relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit uh, somewhere upwards of like 96 times throughout the book of John. And so really from the book of John, we get this, this Trinitarian uh, theology here that we have this relationship between God, the Father and the Son. So, so just as the Father and the Son have this, this relationship, what, what Jesus is saying is that he extends that care now to his sheep to the point where he would be willing to lay down his life for them. Of course, talking about the cross. So then it says this. It says um, in verse 16, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So what he's talking about here is there's other sheep who are outside of this flock, this little metaphor flock that he's giving here. There's other sheep out there that he's got to go claim and bring them into the fold so that now there is one fold. And what he's talking about here is he's talking about the Gentiles. See, if you remember back in in the Old Testament, we had this division between Jews and Gentiles. And the division was that starting back in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses Abraham and makes a covenant with him, makes a promise, and says, with you, starting with you, we, I'm going to create my holy nation, and, and you are going to be, uh, your people is going to be as populous as there are stars in the sky or sand uh, on, the, on the beaches. And, and, and so he starts this holy chosen nation with Abraham. And, and then they're the children of God. They're the holy nation of Israel. And so anyone who was a foreigner and outside of that was uh, to be considered a Gentile. And what, what the difference is with, with Jesus is that what Jesus does is, is now the, the kingdom of God belongs to all nations. In fact, what he says in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew is, therefore, go and tell all nations. He's commanding this charge to go out and tell to, to every, every tribe, every nation. In fact, that's the way Revelation describes heaven. It says that there's every tribe and nation is represented. 
Uh, so, I mean, so not everyone's going to look like me in heaven, and that's great. Not everyone's going to speak like me. That's great. And that's the picture of heaven here. And so what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about how there, there's these Gentiles that he is also going to claim. And, and the Romans even kind of gives this analogy of a tree where it gets to be grafted at the root and now becomes one tree. And so, so the Gentiles then get to be brought in to this flock as well. So then it says this in verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my accord. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. So for Jesus on the cross, the whole reason that he died on the cross was not because some people were able to overpower Jesus and he didn't want to do it, but they hung him anyways. Instead, what it was is he freely chose to give up his life. Now, the reason that he did that, of course, was so that way we can have forgiveness of our sins. But, but he chose to do it. Uh, it's not like he was overpowered. In fact, um, when he was on the cross, there was even a thief next to him who was mocking him and said, hey, look, this guy claims to be the Messiah. Oh, really? Well, why don't you just call down some angels and kill us all? And could Jesus have done that? Oh, he certainly could have, but he chose not to. He chose to lay down his life to be sacrificed, and that's what he's talking about here. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. And this charge I have received from my Father. So all those instructions were given from God the Father. So then in verse 19 it says this, There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And isn't that true? that they're a little freaked out. They're a little wondering what to do with Jesus right now. Because, because for, 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 for them, their, their main concern is that he's claiming to be God. And for, for them, not in reality, but in their book, that's, that's blasphemy. And so, so they think that, well, he's committing blasphemy. And so they're saying, well, okay, I guess he's just possessed by a demon. But then they're saying, well, how can a demon do these works of God. It just doesn't make any sense. You got to be this team or that team. And they're just a little confused on it. So there was a division. So then let's move on. So then in verse uh, 22 here, it says this, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem and it was winter. Okay. So to stop there for just one second. Um, so actually, I had to look this up. I'm like, uh-huh, what's the Feast of Dedication? Like, I don't know. Well, I looked it up, and actually, you guys ready for this? It's Hanukkah. Hey, look at that. Jesus celebrated Hanukkah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, he did. And why wouldn't he? Uh, certainly, Jews at the time would have. In fact, you know, this really is kind of wrapped up as well into our Christian tradition as well. We just don't really highlight it a whole lot, I guess. But, but as well, it happened before Jesus. And, and so, so, I, I, so really, I mean, so Hanukkah, just real quickly, was, was where 
um, I think it was about 160 years before, uh, before Jesus was born. And there was this uh, group of Greek people called the Seleucids who ended up conquering and taking over Jerusalem. And for them, what they did was they, um, they desecrated the temple. And so they took a statue of Zeus and they put, and they, and they put Zeus in the temple and they built an altar to sacrifice to Zeus and not to the true living God. Now, for Jewish people, do you think that made them a little bit upset? <laughs> yes, absolutely, it should. And so then there was this group called the Maccabees that got together, and they were able to um, fend off the Seleucids, and then as well, they were able to reclaim and rededicate the temple. And so that's the Feast of Dedication, because they're rededicating the temple, not for Zeus, but rather for Yahweh, the true living God. So here we are, Jesus, Hanukkah, got it, all right. It's winter, got it. Verse 23, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, anytime that Jesus is cornered, he, he transcends one way or the other way. This, you just got to see what Jesus does here. I just love this kind of stuff. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, basically, Jesus' answer is, you know, I mean, I can stand here and tell you all you want, but, but you're not going to believe. And according to Jesus, why don't they believe? They're not his flock. They're not his children. Pretty interesting stuff here. And then as well, we have this, this uh, um, at the end of this paragraph here, talks about eternal life and how eternal life will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And, and so what we have here with this is that, is that we have, and this is true, like in Romans 8 especially, it goes into like a whole section. I'm not going to be able to quote it verbatim, but it's like, you know, there will be no uh, forces, no principalities, no, you know, it's that whole section of Romans 8. And what it's saying is that, that there's no, there's really no force that's able to snatch someone away from God. And so, so, so Satan is not that strong. I mean, he is strong, but he's not that strong. He's not strong enough to be able to, to snatch someone away uh, from, from God and from his arms. Now, the one thing that the Bible also says pretty clearly, especially in like the book of Hebrews, has this, and Peter has these warnings about how you can on your own choose to give up your salvation. And basically, Hebrews and Peter says, you can, so don't do it. I mean, how stupid would that be? And, and so, so, so you can, if you choose to, you can choose to reject God. But, but that would have to be your doing. Satan himself is not, I mean, he would deceive you, but he himself, and there's no other force out there that's strong enough to be able to break that bond, except for you yourself, you can give it away. And what Hebrews and 
uh, Peter says is, is, is remain in the faith even if things get hard, even if you're persecuted, keep pressing towards the prize. So then we have this. We have in verse uh, 31. The, so, so this is how they reacted. Are you ready for this? Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I love that. I mean, if someone were throwing rocks at me, I'd run. But Jesus just stands there and says, you know, for, for which are you going to stone me? Then the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. And so, so again, we have this area of blasphemy. And, and blasphemy is a very serious thing. It's the second commandment. Uh, in the Ten Commandments about, about God's name. We're not to take it in vain. We're not to blaspheme. And, and by the way, it should bother us. Like if uh, on our way out of church tonight, someone's in the courtyard going, I am God. We would say, uh, no, you're not. All right. That, that, should, that should bother us just a little bit whenever someone makes the claim to be God. And so I, in some ways, I kind of sympathize with the Pharisees a little bit in the sense that, that they would say, well, no one can just stand up and say they're God, but there's such a uniqueness with Jesus. And, and Jesus clearly had that authority. He clearly had the divinity, clearly had the miracles. He was doing all these things to show him that he was the second member of the Trinity, that he was, that he was God. And so, but for them though, because what Jesus said earlier, they're not of his flock, so they're just, they have like this veil, they have this blindness where, where they can't see. And so even though, that, even though they were shown the greatest miracles of all time, they, they just look at it and go, eh, I still don't believe. And how wild is that? And, and so for Jesus here, uh, they say that he's committing blasphemy, and blasphemy is punishable by death in the Old Testament. And so here they are, so they're talking about that. And then in verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then you do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. And so, so Jesus actually replies with something that's kind of interesting. One of the things I really like about this service, this teaching service, is that we get to open up the Bible and read it word for word, and we have to talk about everything that's in it, all right? Um, Sunday mornings are a little different. Sometimes it's like, well, people really need to hear this. We'll talk about this. But, but for this service, we get to talk about things that, that honestly, I, I, I mean, I remember this passage, but I don't really remember much about this section right here. But Jesus quotes to them a psalm. And in the psalm, um, well, and actually, let's see here. Um, well, I'll forget exactly what psalm it is. I had it in my notes down here. But he's quoting this psalm. What is it? 80, yeah, I mean, duh, of course, everyone knew that. Yeah, so, <laughs> it's uh, Psalm 82.6. And in Psalm 82.6, what, what it says here is that uh, it actually says that 
um, well, and it's basically summarized and quoted here, but he calls these people gods. Now, notice, of course, it has the lowercase g and all that, so it's not like there really is this theology of, of um, polytheism where there's multiple gods or something. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He, he says, look, first of all, I claim to be the son of God, and, but also Psalms uses this word gods, plural, to talk about men. And, and whenever I was reading some commentaries on this, they, they, were, they were saying that in the psalm, by using the word gods here, is talking about rulers or, or kings of the earth. And so, so, that's, so that's in the psalms. And so Jesus is quoting them a psalm that, you know, outside of Dale just shouting at it, Psalm 82.6, you know, I, don't, I didn't really remember where it was, but because to me it's not that central of a psalm, but, but Jesus is quoting that, saying it's Psalm 82.6 here that refers to gods. And, and so he's saying, look, hey, look, you know, I, I said I'm the son of God, and, uh, you know, he said, I'm using this word here. And so, so what? So, so what? You can't get me on blasphemy for that. But again, what we have here is that in verse uh, 39, and again, they sought to arrest him, but then he did what I would have done the first time, which is to escape from their hands. And so he just, he flees, he runs. Uh, they're throwing rocks at him. He gets out of Dodge. And then we have verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man, about Jesus, was true. And many believed in him there. So the next section that we get into is uh, this incredible story about Lazarus. And the way the book of John takes this is this is like the turning point where um, Lazarus, I mean, the blind man was a big deal. Lazarus is even a bigger deal. And, and so really, I just kind of want to close with this thought here is that, that uh, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's our shepherd. Uh, he cares for us. He knows us by name. He's even willing to, to lay down his life for us. One thing that uh, people who, who uh, don't have a relationship with Jesus, whenever we talk about God, who God is, um, it's, it's almost this thought of like, it's an old man in the sky. You know, you guys have heard that, seen that like on TV or something. But it's an old man in the sky who doesn't, and he's just, he's just mad at you. And that's kind of how they think of God. And, and they're just saying like, why would you want to believe in that? And I say, because I don't. <laughs> I mean, I absolutely do not believe that God is just this old man in the clouds looking down, condemning me. And that's how so many people, unfortunately, view God. And what we find whenever we actually open up the Bible, and whenever we actually read the Bible, one thing that we find is we find a loving God. And we find a God who, who cares for his flock, for his children. And he promises protection. He promises um, as well, that, that he uh, loves us and knows us by name and will be willing to lay down his life. And that's what he did on the cross, that he was willing to, to die on the cross, to suffer, to bleed to death, and, and to endure all that pain and all that suffering so that he can pay the price for our sins. All the things that we've done wrong in our lives, all of the things that we look back on and we feel guilty for, that, that Jesus died for those things. And because he died for them, that he gets to offer grace and offer forgiveness. And so, so today, 
we today get to receive that. And if we receive it and if we believe it, then he promises eternal life. And so, so I'm going to close up with that. And then Pastor Mike is going to be here next week. And we're going to get into this crazy story of Lazarus. All right. So let's close up in prayer here. Dear Jesus, we, we thank you for gathering us here where we get to talk about how you're the good shepherd and as well how, how we're in your flock and how you care for us, how you know us by name and you love us and you're willing to lay down your life. We pray, Lord, that, that as we uh, go into our evenings and for some of us back to work or for some of us to catch a little bit of the last few minutes of this game, we pray, Lord, that it would be a time where we can reflect on these things and just, and just remember about how, how we want to follow you because you are our shepherd and you're the one who leads us, you're the one who guides us. And all this we pray, amen.